Thank you, Allison. Can, do I have veto power? Can I veto Twister? Can, can I? I mean, my back started aching just thinking about that. A consistory vote. Uh, is there a second for that? <laughs> that second. Anyone else? Okay. Yeah. Whew. I think I lost friends over that game in elementary school. Like, seriously, I'm, just, I'm stuck on Twister. Okay. It actually leads really well into what we're talking about because I wanted to start this time together. I wanted to ask you a question, all right? And I'm so, forgive me if you get upset. I promise we will, we will go on a journey together today. But I want you to think about this. What makes you irrationally angry? Maybe it's Twister. I think it might be one for me. I didn't know that. Maybe Twister makes me irrationally angry. What makes you irrationally angry? I polled several people this past week, just kind of asking, hey, what are some of your pet peeves? What are some of the things that kind of get your blood boiling? And um, first one that I heard was a lack of turn signals. I'm driving. Someone's not using their signal. I'm mad. Uh Uh-huh. Or tailgating, but not like the fun kind before a football game, the driving kind. You know what I'm talking about? Improper use of the passing lane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of car-related things came out. Another grouping of things that seemed to come out was um, what it's like to life at home, especially if you're living with other people. Um, I'm going to leave out the ones that kind of turned into a mini counseling session right then and there. Um, I'm leaving those ones out, but some themes that came out were dirty floors or sticky floors. Or, uh, you know, when you empty the dishwasher, if you have one, and all the water driplets get on the floor, and they stay on the floor, and you happen to walk into the kitchen, and you step on those driplets with your sock. Oh, there's an anger. That's a righteous anger. Maybe. I don't know. Probably not. Uncapped markers and craft supplies strewn about the kitchen table. Of course, I've found kids are most creative right at dinner time. That's when they have a bout of inspiration I must create. And the, the markers and the papers. And Meg will be testament to this. I'm not the best dad at this time when I'm trying to get dinner on the table in a hot fashion, in a quick fashion. It's just... What about people who don't say bye on the phone? You're talking and it's just, it's just done. Like, okay. Some things, I would say, are universal that make us irrationally angry, such as the Ohio State University. Here's the deal. Whether you're a fan of the Ohio State University or not, that the is so obnoxious. You're pretentious enough. Just be Ohio State University and move on. Okay, I'm actually, I'm actually getting worked up. This is not good. I'm sorry, friends. Forgive me. It's fun to laugh about these things, right? We all have our things. We all have these weird things that should not make us angry. But we find when they happen or when we hear about them, we do. And it kind of seems harmless. It's fun to joke about. But as we dig in to our message today, we're going to discover that we all kind of carry this constant stream of simmering anger within us, and it finds different ways of working itself out. It can all seem harmless until it's not. 
We're in our series, we're on our sixth commandment in our series, The Ten, as we are looking at these ten commandments given to us, gifted to us by our good God to remind us and to call us back into what life and God's design looks like. And so that's what we've been talking about. And this command, many of us probably felt like or feel like we might be exempt from it because it's just not one of those ones that's going to affect us or that we're going to partake in. But I think as we'll discover, it might just prove to be one of the most convicting of them all. Talking about the sixth commandment, we're in God's true word, Exodus chapter 20 today. We're going to be reading verse 13. It's not all that long. It will be on the screen, but you're invited to turn there with you, uh, with your Bibles as well, if you'd like. Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 13. Hear now the true word of the Lord. You shall not murder. That's it. You shall not murder. Many of us were raised with the translation, thou shalt not kill. You shall not murder. It's important we understand what this commandment is speaking to. The commandment, it doesn't refer to all killing, but specifically to murder. There's a lot of different words in Hebrew to mean different types of killing. And so it's important we notice that because elsewhere in Scripture, other types of death inflicted are addressed throughout Scripture, such as capital punishment, such as war, such as death of the unborn, such as accidental death, and so on. Surrounding all these areas within Scripture, we have clarity, but we have to use significant care and nuance as we engage with them and discuss them. That's not our focus today, but I wanted to name that those things are present in Scripture. So if you are intrigued, I encourage you into a time of personal study around those things. But today our focus is on the specific type of killing that is highlighted in this commandment, which is murder. It is the planned or the sinful killing of one person by another. And the command is short. It is in Hebrew, the original language it was written in, it's just two words. Two words best translated as no murder. That's it. Just no murder, right? It does sound like a parent, right? Like, like kids, no yelling. Kids, no murder. No murder. But we know within our, the deepest part of us that murder is wrong, don't we? We know it is wrong. Out of all the commandments, this is easily the most universally agreed upon by Christians and non-Christians alike. We do not murder. Why is this such a grievous crime? We, to talk about that, we have to talk about the Imago Dei. That means image of God. We are created in the image of God. Look at what it says in Genesis. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Anytime you see repetition in Scripture, it is highlighting the importance of what is being said. It is a, an indicator for us to, to perk our ears up and pay attention. And here is a lot of repetition that we are made in the image of God. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you're made in the image of God. Turn to your second choice. Say, you're made in the image of God. 
my parents, and perhaps your parents are in your own home or your grandparents' house, they have a ton of pictures on display. A lot of pictures of, of their kids, you know, me and their grandkids, my kids, all of that, all around their house. Can you imagine what you would feel if you walked into that house someday and every single picture of you was scribbled and torn out? That would hurt, wouldn't it? That's like the smallest of offense compared to what it is to actually take the life of someone else. God created us on the sixth day, and in the sixth commandment, he commands us to protect that which he creates. For a person to take the life of another, it goes completely against the created order. It is not just a personal attack on another person. It doesn't also just harm their family and friends and entire social circles as well. It is also a personal attack on the one who created that person. The one whose image is reflected, it's a personal attack on God, the giver of life. Most of us are likely thinking, yes, this is awful for all those murderers out there. And that is true. But we have to acknowledge, we have a pretty messed up family tree. Sin entered the world, and the firstborn of humankind was a murderer. The capacity to take another's life is within us all. I'd like to welcome those of you who are new to Hope Church. I promise we do have good news for you today. Look at what it says here. Uh, this is the encounter with Cain and Abel. Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve, and he had a younger brother named Abel. And we pick up from verse 4 of chapter 4 of Genesis. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The text doesn't explicitly say why Cain's offering is not accepted. We don't question, though, if God is being fair or not. We have all of Scripture that reveals to us God's character and his heart and his judgment and his way of things. And then we also read in his word in Proverbs, the sacrifice of an evil person is detestable, especially when it's offered with wrong motives. That may give us a glimpse into why Cain's offering isn't acceptable, which backs up what God then goes on to say. Back to Genesis 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So there was something about his offering that was not right in the eyes of the Lord. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We have all of Scripture that reveals to us God's character and heart, but we have very little of Cain. And what we learn is he moves quickly from God sitting with him, trying to help him and guide him to Cain then going off and killing, murdering his brother. What do we notice in the text? It says Cain is very angry. 
not just a little angry, very angry. That speaks of rage. That speaks even deeper of contempt for Abel. Anger at another degrades them so much into something that is less than. That's what contempt is. They're less than. We no longer see the image of God in that person. Or perhaps for Cain, maybe he sees the image of God in that person and strikes out to attack. What else do we see? He's very angry, but also his face is downcast. What I read into that is a sense of shame of hurt, of pain, of embarrassment. And these things go hand in hand, don't they? And they can fuel each other too, can't they? I know. I've dealt with anger most of my life. That's one of my bigger struggles with emotions I have to wrestle with. It's like, oh, happy Kevin. Not always. Not always. There was a lot, I'm thinking about, especially when I was a teenager, when it really had control over me instead of me control over it. I was a very angry teenager. There was a lot going on in my life. I was trying to figure out. I was trying to understand it all. There were hurts that I was carrying and didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to process it in a healthy way. But my emotions had to come out somehow, and they often came out in anger. The tipping point one day in middle school, I come home from school, and I was hurt about something. I'm not even sure to this day what it was, but I was carrying all this built-up, unprocessed grief, anger, and hurt. My mom asked me to go upstairs and tidy my room. Pretty normal thing for her to ask, and in isolation, not a big request at all. Makes sense. But in that moment, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was so mad. I went upstairs, and I was all that frustration. I had no idea what to do with it, and I, the, the logical thing for me, of course, was, was to push on my window with all my might. I shattered it. It's not logical. It's not rational, because anger doesn't think rationally. It comes out how it's going to come out. Praise God I was safe, but I can tell you I was deeply afraid, incredibly ashamed, embarrassed. Was hurt. And that cycle, if we don't stop it, can then lead into further anger, which will deepen the shame and the guilt and the pain. And it has to come out some way. So, are we doing the hard work to process it well? Cain was very angry. He was very hurt. He was so hurt and upset. He let that seed of anger that was present in him fully blossom to its greatest expression of murder. We must be steadfast at weeding out the growing anger within all of us. God has such incredible wisdom, and it's on display here with Cain. He says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. Sin is crouching at your door. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Crouching at your door, prowling around. Sin and the enemy are sneaky, and if we are not vigilant, they will completely consume us. We desperately need to call on our victorious Christ so that we might not be consumed. See, the path to breaking the sixth commandment does not begin with plotting 
murder, it begins with a far more common and prevalent sin, which is being angry. Now we are, let's be clear, there is such a thing as righteous anger. We see this in Scripture. We, we see it on display in Jesus Christ. We have Paul's addressing us. He says, be angry and do not sin. He wouldn't have to specify those if there, is, if there wasn't such a thing as righteous anger. But right, so, so what is righteous anger? Righteous anger is anger whose aim is to defend God's holiness with no thought to self. But let's be completely honest. There is not even just a razor's edge. There is half a razor's edge difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. And we as human beings are not good at holding that line. This is our challenge. If we don't master anger, it will master you. John Calvin reminds us that in the law, in God's goodness that we have read today, human life is instructed not merely in outward decency, but inward spiritual righteousness. That's what we are talking about as we talk about this anger. Do not murder is the command, but sinful anger is the seed of murder present in all of us. We talked before throughout this series on Ten Commandments that we are not called to a bare minimum level of obedience. If that were the case, we just don't murder anyone. Check. We are called deeper in God's commands. See, the bare minimum obedience to this command would appear to, to, to be that not murdering the individual, but we look beyond that to the life-giving way of life God intends, which deals with our hearts, and our actions, our inward reality, and our outward response. The Lord gives the sixth command to forbid the taking of innocent life and to condemn the attitudes that lead to actual physical murder. Calvin continues in his Institutes, the hand indeed gives birth to murder, but the mind, when infected with anger and hatred, conceives it. But we don't take it just at John Calvin's word. We go to Jesus. And Jesus taught on this himself. He even expanded on the understanding of our command today in Matthew 5. This is what Jesus says. You have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, I love that expression of Jesus, when you have heard it said, it's a road sign for course correction. All right? This is recalculating, recalculating. You're going the wrong way, recalculating. You've heard it said, and you've misunderstood. Many people in the first century, like many of us today, believe that they have obeyed the sixth commandment as long as they've never killed anyone. But Christ's response to the sentiment indicates that such obedience, while necessary, is not enough. He doesn't long for us not to murder. He longs for us to also get down to the root of the issue and start there. For the seed of sinful anger is in all of us. Look at the text again. It, 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 there's a progression present in what Jesus is instructing. First it says, everyone who is angry, say angry. Everyone who is angry 
with his brother. First, with his brother. Reminds us we are all children of God. Remembers our shared humanity. Uh, that's important. But also, it's this anger. It's that seed that grows. It's all these little things in our lives and with those people in our lives that in isolation don't seem like they actually matter that much, but together they add up to a lot. That anger and it grows. He then says, not just those who are angry, whoever insults his brother. Say insults. Insults. That's a directed anger. An insult is anger that is now directed. It has grown more from a seed into something that is starting to show signs. Outward signs of the anger that was already in us. And the third Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, please don't say that one. <laughs> I couldn't take it. <laughs> um, notice, he doesn't say to your brother. There's no more mention of your brother. We have reduced this other individual to less than human in our minds. And that's what anger grown does, doesn't it? It blossoms into contempt. And we don't even see them as a person, an image bearer of Christ any longer. Now, to help understand this word, you fool, uh, Miles, my oldest son's going to help us out. Miles look, goes to school and he learns things. Um, sometimes his teachers teach him things, and a lot of times his friends teach him things. And one day he came home and he told me this. He says, Dad, did you know putting up your middle finger is bad? I said, I did, son. He said, how do you know that? He goes, well, my friend told me. If you put up your middle finger... It's like saying all the swear words all at the same time. That's essentially kind of what this term, when you dig into the original Hebrew, is getting at. You fool, in the original Hebrew, it was a term so far beyond angry at someone else that you are insulting them with the strongest insult you can muster. It's the next stage in the progression. It identifies the contempt. Angry, inside anger. The insult, outward anger. And then the aggressive, you fool. It's grown into full-on contempt. It goes like this when you follow that. The first, I'm angry with you in response to a hurt. We know hurt people hurt people. And then it moves on to, I begin to question your character with an insult. And then it moves from there to, I begin to question your worth as a person. Anger degrades into contempt and we no longer see the image of God staring back of us for in our eyes we've devalued their personhood. Jesus in this teaching is helping us have eyes to see the seedling of anger may grow to the thorny vine that chokes out all of life. We had some fun at the beginning of this message, right? I, I actually got angry, but it was fun for a minute there. <laughs> I told you I... I'm working on my anger. We had some fun at the beginning with these silly things that seem to upset us. But when we're honest, there's plenty of things that we get so unnecessarily worked up about, isn't there? You know, we have exaggerated responses to small things. It reveals that pent-up anger that we carry with us at all times. Um, in the first Avengers movie, there's a scene. I didn't really like it at the time, but it actually came to make sense. There's a character, if you are familiar with the, the Avengers, called the Incredible Hulk. He's the big green guy. 
okay? But he is not always that way. He looks like a human, kind of like me, but with curly, uh, with actual hair, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's a scene where there's a big thing coming to get the, the bad guy, right? And they're like, hey, we need you to turn into the Incredible Hulk. Only way he could turn into the Hulk, into the big green guy, is to be angry. But he, he says, we need you to turn in. You gotta get angry. And he turns and he says, want to know my secret? I'm always angry. And then he does his thing. And he turns into Hulk right then and there. And I was like, what does that mean? He's always angry. But you know what? I get it. I get it. I think we all get it. If we're honest and vulnerable, that we carry anger within us. And it's not just us everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. I mean, look around. The anger and the outrage, that seems to be the new normal everywhere we look. Whether it's the news or news feed or the waiting room or waiting in line, it's everywhere. Have you noticed it? Have you noticed it in yourself? We're more snippy. We're less patient. Whatever it is, it's in us all. Friends, for all of us, there is a better way. It's a better way, and we're called to a higher way. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way he laid out for us in Scripture, and these good ten words that bring us back to his path of life. We need to own this reality, that the anger within us holds incredible capacity to overcome us and pour out of us toward disastrous results. We are all one choice away from just completely ruining our lives. So what do we do? We remember that through, that though sin and the enemy are sneaky and powerful, they are no match for our victorious God, who is the giver of life and the conqueror of death. Jesus died so that all might live. He gave himself up so that all might be set free. Though the power of sin is great, our God is greater. And so there is hope and help available for all, and it begins at the feet of Jesus. There is hope. In your rage, there is hope. In your contempt, there is hope. In your anger, there is hope. In your frustration, there is hope. In your complaints, there is hope. In all the seeds of sin present within us, there is hope in Jesus. We remember Jesus. We remember his life. We remember his life was taken. We remember him on that cross as he's unjustly murdered. And he calls out to God. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That same Jesus also calls us not to hate our enemies like we'd expect, but to love our enemies. He calls us to pray for those who, are, who persecute us. He shows us a better way. Jesus went to the cross so that we might live, so we will live seeking to be like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and our lives. How do we do that? The commandment urges us to weed the garden of our lives as we seek to be like Jesus in this hurting and broken world. 
in order to do the hard work of weeding all this stuff out, we first have to just name and identify that anger within you. It's been said before that naming things has a way of taming things. I'd add it's the beginning step toward taming things. It's like that very first step where we bring that which resides in the darkness into God's glorious transforming light. It's not easy. But there is no growth without sacrifice. There is no life without light. This is something you may have been carrying for years and years and years. This might be something you've been working on and trying to work through for a long portion of your life. If you continue to try and struggle, it is time to seek the professional help to aid you and aid the path of healing for you to find the victory that is found in Jesus alone over your anger. We have more resources now available to us than ever before. Good Christian, God-centered resources that point us back to his way that will help you. If this is something you are struggling with, will you reach out to me? I can't sit with you all, but I can share resources and point you to where you can go to get the very thing you need. Please reach out to me if this is you at all. But all of us need to name that anger within us. What is it? There's nothing too silly or small to write on that paper, friends. And then we have to do the hard work of daily weeding out those sprouts of anger in our lives. Simply naming them is not enough. We need to go to work by calling on the name and power of Jesus' name. You ever catch yourself getting worked up? Take a moment and ask, how can I honor Jesus in this moment? That changes things. How can I be like Jesus in this moment? How can I invite Jesus in to this moment? How can I proactively even practice gratitude in this moment? That's the hard work of daily weeding out the sprouts of anger in our lives. That gets at the internal work of, but what about the external work? Well, we need to guard and protect life. God gives life. God creates. And he calls on us to oversee it, to protect it, to multiply it. We don't just stop there, though. We don't just guard and protect life. We fight against anger and seek to be agents of Christ's love, peace, and reconciliation. One of our confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, helps us understand what that gets at in question and answer 107. The question is, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? And the answer is no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, to be peace-loving, to be gentle, to be merciful and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. In a world of hate and outrage, we show and speak a better way. We don't lower ourselves to any level of this earth. And friends across the globe, our brothers and sisters in Christ have done that. And we've all been guilty of that. We don't lower ourselves to the way of this world. We seek to live up to our high and holy calling as citizens of the kingdom as we represent the one true king. And our king has called us to be an advocate for life 
through showing others his peace-bringing love. Hear this quote as we begin to wrap up here. To do that will require that we take stock of how we might be participating in the anger worship of our cultural moment. It will require that we strive to preserve life in a culture that believes entire categories of image bearers are worthy of our contempt or our disregard, such as the unborn, the elderly, the differently abled, the poor, the powerless, the foreigner. And in a world defined by living at odds with others, it will require that we strive to live at peace with others as far as it is possible with us. It will ask us to be our brother's keepers, even as Christ has been ours. This is what we are called to, friends. We will not merely refrain from taking life. We will run towards giving it. Let us read in the six words prohibition of murder, the exhortation to take every care to preserve life. Let us run to be life protectors and esteem givers as we weed out the anger within us all to bring Jesus' perfect shalom, the perfect shalom of our Savior who gave up his life so that we might have ours. There is a better way. It's the way of Jesus. Let's get after it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, things on this earth are not as they were meant to be. Sin has infiltrated and corrupted every single thing of your beautiful and perfect creation. And so righteously we are angry at the brokenness of this world. But we also name God and confess and come to the feet of Jesus to say that we have been a part of it too. Forgive us, Lord. We think even now specifically of those ways we have given in to the anger worship of our world. And we ask for your merciful saving grace again that calls us to a better way. God, we know it's possible because you are our king. We know it's possible because you went to the cross and came back to life you conquered death, and you have not left us powerless, but reside within us with the Spirit's power right here, right now. So we say thank you, Lord. We submit to your power, authority, and will again today. Lord, we long to make this world know your name. But we know it is so broken. So at the same time as seeking to bring your shalom and be agents of your peace and love in this place, we also look ahead knowing that there will be a day where there is no more pain. There will be a day when there is no more sadness, sorrow, or anger, or malice, or hatred. But all who call on your name as Lord and Savior will be with you in perfect paradise forevermore and your perfect shalom forevermore. That's our heart's deepest longing. God, may you work through us to 
let your kingdom break through here this side of eternity as we look ahead to what you have in store and what you're doing right now in our midst. We love you, God. We ask all this in your powerful name. Amen.